Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. If you are a younger leader, you might find today's episode particularly helpful. We're going to be talking with someone who has been an executive director of a nonprofit organization, which in and of itself can be a little bit different thing as opposed to a for-profit business, because oftentimes you're working with volunteers and things like that. But in addition to that, we talk about some of the things that come as difficulties when you may be put into a role that you're not entirely prepared for. Now, That's what happens in life a lot. We are put into roles that we're not prepared for, and that is one of the best places to learn if you stay humble and if you come in with the right attitude. Regardless of where you are in your leadership, whether you've been leading for decades or only a few years, I think you will find today's interview very insightful and helpful for your leadership. Now, our guest today has worked in the nonprofit sector for over 15 years, 12 of them as an executive director. During her tenure as executive director of Breakthrough New York, she oversaw significant growth in the number of students served in the staff, the budget, and replication to three sites. She has become a leader in the New York educational community and is a frequent educational commentator in the media. She has been recognized with the Smart CEO Brava Award in 2015 and New York Nonprofit Media's 40 Under 40 in 2017. She's also the host of Nonprofit Lowdown, a podcast dedicated to the business of nonprofits. Here is Rhea Wong. Rhea, welcome to the podcast. Josh, it's such a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. I like to start off every single interview with a few questions to help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for us to apply in our own lives. So you ready for these? Yep, go ahead. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Um, you know, it, it's one of my favorite mottos, which is it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. So a lot of what I feel like I've learned in my life in leadership has either been through making mistakes, which I consider to be a, a good learning opportunity or by just doing it. So, I mean, it's a little bit like riding a bike. You can read about how to ride a bike. You can watch YouTube videos about how to ride a bike, but until you actually get on the bike and ride, it's very hard to learn how to ride a bike. Um, So I really am a big proponent of learning by doing. And also, I think I've been a lifelong learner. I read a lot. I talk to a lot of people. Actually, the um, impetus for my podcast was actually that I had a lot of very smart friends in the nonprofit space. And I just thought, well, I have this great resource. Why don't I just (laughs) interview all my friends and learn from them? And so the two things I guess it would be is don't be afraid to just do the thing, try it out, be willing to make mistakes, be ready to apologize if you screw up, um, and always be open to learning and, and asking good questions. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A leader is curious, a leader is bold, and a leader is compassionate. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? You know, I think that being a leader is actually about being 
always kind of on the bleeding edge. And I think the very nature of leadership is to be always a little bit uncomfortable. And so I always like that Eleanor Roosevelt quote about fear, like do something that makes, I'm going to screw it up, but do something that makes you afraid every day. Um, and so for me as a leader, it, it's always just perpetually kind of putting yourself out on the ledge of doing something you've never done before, uh, pushing people to do stuff they've never done before, being ready to fail, um, which I think is often the scariest piece for a lot of people, especially, you know, type A uh, perfectionists, um, of which I'm not one, actually. I'm, I'm glad to say I'm not a perfectionist, but I am very type A, as are a lot of people in New York City. Um, but I think the willingness to fail and the willingness to be uncomfortable uh, is key. What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Oh my gosh, so many. Uh, <laughs> right now, I am having a love affair with Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. And she actually was just on my podcast, but she is really an amazing person. And her book really shaped a lot of thinking for me about the power of conversations. And her point is that what we have in our lives, you know, or, or what we don't have happened because of conversations that did or did not happen, one conversation at a time. And, and so often for me, that really resonated because, you know, when I was in a leadership role, there were often times when I had to have the uncomfortable conversation. Um, and there were times that I did not have the conversation and let a situation go on far too long. And I think it really was very detrimental to um, the relationship, the organization and forward progress. So Fierce Conversations, love. Um, I, uh, I'm always a big fan of how to win friends and influence people. It's a super simple book, but a lot of really good sound wisdom in it, which is basically like people like to talk about themselves and the best way to influence people is to sort of with honey and not with vinegar. I'm in the middle of atomic habits right now. So I think part of my leadership or maybe just my personality is always in constant, um, constant motion and always trying to get better. And so I'm reading Atomic Habits in order to figure out how I can make little tweaks to my to my daily habits in order to maximize my my performance. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? You know, I'm a big fan of writing things down and speaking things into existence. And so often I like to start my my beginning of my years off with intentions um, and, and three big goals and kind of keep them posted up somewhere. And so I think that there's real power in making explicit the thing that you intend to do. So I would say that would be certainly one thing. The other thing, and I run into this a lot because I, I'm a consultant now. I work with a lot of nonprofit leaders and, and actually a lot of founders. And what I find is that founders in particular are very good at problem solving because they're often the ones who started something out of nothing. Um, I often say, too, that a strength at some point becomes a weakness when you become over-reliant on it. And so I really push a lot of the leaders that I work with to stop trying to solve other people's problems and instead ask them a question like, what do you intend to do about it? Um, the reason being that a lot of the founders I work with get into the zone of what I call a genius with a hundred helpers. And so they still, they're at the hub of all of the activities and then they burn out or they complain that like people aren't owning the work. It's like, because you're telling them what to do. And so instead we build up people's leadership by putting 
the responsibility on them to ask them like, well, how do you intend to solve this? What do you intend to do about that? And I think it over time builds that muscle around leadership and decision making. And now we have our final arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Why not? Always. (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I actually... This is my mantra for 2020, um, along with the original point around better to ask forgiveness than permission. I mean, I'm I'm very aware that kind of on the spectrum of visionary versus integrator, I tend to be very visionary. Visionaries by their nature are disruptive and, you know, certainly uh, not always in a positive way, I would say. But I think people who are on the visionary scale have to imagine a world that does not exist today. They're the ones who see something that other people don't see. And I I think my personal particular gift is the ability to be innovative and to push. And so uh, the, the question about why not is a much more interesting question to me than why. Now, Rio, we are here to talk about nonprofit leadership and your work in helping nonprofit leaders in their growth and as they lead their organizations. But you had a decade and a half in the nonprofit sector before moving to consulting, and most of those were as an executive director. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that leadership and especially about your time at Breakthrough New York. Explain a little bit about what that is because I think it's a really cool organization from what I've read about it. Gosh, so much to say there. So Breakthrough New York is a college success program. We identify kids who are coming from low-income backgrounds but have a lot of potential, and we essentially recreate what a middle-class family would be able to provide for them. So all of the opportunities, the resources, the connections, and so forth. And we can um, support them for 10 years to and through college. And simultaneously, we also hire high-achieving high school and college students to teach. So we're also inspiring the next generation of teachers. And the reason why I actually started working at this organization as I was a breakthrough kid myself in San Francisco. So Mm. it was a national organization. So you know, I, I call myself a little bit of an executive director by accident. I'd never intended to be in the nonprofit space, certainly not for as long as I have been. Um, and there was just really something about the organization that had changed my life trajectory that I felt very emotionally and personally committed to. And also um, that I have a very strong sense of justice and social justice. And so as it happens, the, the nonprofit sector really checks a lot of the boxes for me. So I loved my time as an executive director, and I found it to be incredibly rewarding and hard. I mean, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, I think nonprofit leaders uh, face a really unique challenge in that often they are driven by a, a deep internal conviction to to change the world in some positive way, whether it's send kids to college or, um, you know, find uh, resources for homeless folks or protect panda bears, you know, some kind of larger good. And we do it with fewer resources and less support than I think you get in the for-profit sector. And so a lot of times you see nonprofit leaders and their staffs really pushing hard for nothing more than the love of the work. You know, it's not because we're paying outrageous amounts of money. It's not that you get glory and recognition. It's that you 
genuinely and truly believe in the thing that you do. And so I think because folks lead so much with their heart that actually also the dark side of it is that people can burn out because they, they believe so deeply in what they do and they push so hard for so long. And was it seeing that lack of resources and that need that encouraged you to become a consultant for nonprofits? You know, it's funny you ask. It actually was because I felt like, so I I became an executive director at the age of 26, which again, I'm deeply grateful for the opportunity. And then on the other hand, I'm like, what were they thinking? Like, Why were they giving keys to a 26 year old? And I felt like I had learned a lot over 12 years, most of it trial by fire. I mean, I, I certainly made a ton of mistakes, which I've talked about pretty broadly on my podcast, but, um, what it seemed to me was that we were constantly putting people in these roles which they were unprepared for and didn't really have a roadmap for. And so um, part of it was the, the lack of resources, but really I genuinely wanted to help people and still want to help people try to navigate the challenges of being in a really hard spot. I mean, when you are the leader of an organization, whether you know it or not, everybody's looking at you and taking cues from you about how they should be, act, behave, think, feel. And, you know, frankly, when I was 26 years old, I did not, I didn't know that. And it was only after many mistakes that I've made that I came to realize the importance of a leader in both explicit and implicit ways. So I want to get to your leadership in just a few minutes, but you also mentioned your podcast. Was that something that you started after you finished as an executive director and you started as a consultant? Yeah, it was actually. So like you, I'm sure uh, you, I'm sure you listen to a lot of different podcasts. I do as well. And I just thought it would be a lot of fun to do my own, particularly because I had such an amazing network of people here in New York and and in other cities who I really respected and admired, and I thought that they were smart, interesting people. And I thought, you know, it's such an embarrassment of riches here in New York City. I mean, the concentration of talent and nonprofits and funders is pretty unique. And so I thought it would be great to be able to share what I know that I knew and that my friends knew. So it was really kind of a selfish thing, which is I wanted to learn about what they knew And I also wanted to hang out with my friends. And so in a busy life, you know, we always see our friends are like, yeah, 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 we'll we'll get coffee, we'll get drinks, we'll catch up. And you never do. And so this actually provided the necessary impetus to actually catch up because I had a, I had a recording schedule. So it's been a lot of fun. I really love it. It For me, it really goes to a, a lot of my core beliefs about always learning. Um, and I, I learned so much from my guests. So if people wanted to listen to your show, The Nonprofit Lowdown, I know it can be hard to pick like favorites, but do you have any episodes that you really would like to highlight and pinpoint as like the ones to go to? Well, Josh, like I said, I love them all like my children. I don't have favorites. However, (laughs) if folks wanted to choose just a few, I really recommend my conversation with Susan Scott, author of Fierce Conversations. I really, really loved my conversation with Kara Logan Berlin about fundraising. Um, And I really, really loved my conversation with Diane Morales about leading as a woman of color. And uh, incidentally, Diane Morales uh, used to run an amazing organization here in New York called Phipps Neighborhood. 
and now is running for mayor of New York. So there you go. You might be listening to the future mayor. So you were just talking about leadership as a woman of color. What was it like leading? First of all, you mentioned as a young person, 26 years old, mm-hmm. uh, an executive yeah. director. You're an Asian-American woman. Does that factor in to your leadership at all? I, I think it certainly does. Um, and I've really reflected on it a lot. So I've of late been um, putting together a group of Asian-American professionals on a monthly basis and we have dinners. And I think what's really interesting about it, and you know, perhaps it's that I'm, (laughs) that I'm, I have selective memory about things that I don't necessarily want to remember. um, But I, what I've noticed about a lot of the Asian women that I work with is there seems to be a lot of uh, culturally entrenched feelings of imposter syndrome and of holding oneself back and not being incredibly confident, I somehow missed that day in when they were, you know, instructing that in school. So I've always been kind of a out there extrovert type A, over perhaps overly confident person. Um, but what I have been noticing, particularly across the board, is that women of color, especially in leadership roles, tend to not only second guess themselves but are also second guessed more. And, you know, again, the conversation with Diane Morales is a perfect example, but um, oftentimes I'm, I'm, I I guess I'm not shocked, but I am dismayed at the ways in which women of color in leadership positions are not taken as seriously or undermined or uh, second guessed as compared to their white or, and or male and or white male counterparts. And so um, I think that the glass ceiling certainly is real, particularly in nonprofit, which is interesting because it is actually a field dominated by women. It's like 75% of the nonprofit workforce are women. But if you look at the highest levels of leadership, it's dominated by men. And so I think that tells us a lot about who is being promoted and brought to the table and sitting around the table and making decisions about the work that we do. And on the flip side, when we look at who we're actually serving, it tends to be communities of color and vulnerable people. And so how are we actually, as a sector, ensuring that our leadership reflects the people that we're serving? Now, another thing that you mentioned is that when you were leading as a 26-year-old or as a young person in general, you maybe didn't realize as much that people were taking cues from you. Mm -hmm. What were some of the areas that you grew most as a leader as you began to understand how people viewed you and your role as a leader? Yeah, so I think I think a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> I think um, number one, actually realizing that everything that I did was not only being watched, but that that there was meaning being made of it, even though I didn't necessarily see any meaning to it. So I'll give you a, a little example. Um, there was this one time at a staff meeting, something came up where people were like, well, you know, it's obvious that, in not so many words, but essentially people were accusing me of, of playing favorites. And on, upon reflecting on it, it wasn't actually that I played favorites. It was two things that I hadn't even kind of been aware of. The first is that I happened to say hi to people who were sitting on the outside. We had a big open uh, office. They sat on the outside portion of the office because it happened to be on the way to my to my office, like from the front door. And mm-hmm. so the interpretation was that I favored the people that I said hello to. Literally, like, didn't even think about it because they just happened to be in my pathway. But there was interpretation 
uh, and meaning made out of something that I didn't even think about. Thing two was we had a practice of praising people for wins during the week. And often the wins that I would praise had to do with fundraising because I worked more closely with the fundraising team than I did with other members of uh, different departments. And so the interpretation there was, oh, well, Rhea only cares about fundraising. And so I bring up those two examples to say that I think meaning will be made of everything that you do, even if you don't know it. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing that I would say is communicate, communicate, communicate. I think leaders under communicate all of the time. And what I mean by that is often we're having conversations in our head every day and we assume that those conversations are known to other people. And even if we say it out loud once, it takes seven times for someone to actually understand something or remember something that you're saying. And so I often got in trouble with my board and my staff by moving too quickly and having under-communicated the direction I was heading in and why I was heading there. And so I think buy-in and communication were key. I do think that there's always been a tension, and I think it, it's a healthy tension, of a leader who tries to probably move faster than most folks are comfortable with. And I think that sort of is the inherent disruption and tension that must exist in a creative space. And then I would say the third thing is, I think I probably made the same mistake of trying to solve other people's problems because I, you know, having come up through the organization, I basically had done everybody's job at, on some level. And so pulling myself back because, you know, I'm, I'm a type A person. I just like want to get stuff done. Um, pulling myself back and allowing people the space to do something the way that they wanted to do it and allowing them room to make mistakes was probably a big learning lesson for me and, and probably one of my hardest because I certainly felt like we don't have any room for error. We Everything has to be perfect. We have to move forward on this. It, like Kids' lives are at stake. Um, and while that is true, I also think that by basically by doing everyone's job for them or telling them how to do their job, didn't help them to become better leaders and certainly didn't make my life any easier. So I think those are kind of the big ones that I can think about, but I'm sure there are a, a bajillion more. Today, when you're working with nonprofit leaders, obviously you've just talked about some of the things that you learned, but when you're working with other people, what do you find are the biggest leadership needs? Are, are there any trends that you're able to see as you're working with different organizations and different leaders? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I do think that um, I, I work with a lot of different types of leaders and different types of organizations. So it's a little bit hard to draw a parallel, but um, I would say that a couple of things that I've really noticed, you know, I, I do think, especially working with founders, there tends to be um, a point at which their strengths become weaknesses. And so it's sort of exactly what I was mentioning before is like helping leaders transition from a founder to a sustaining executive director is certainly a challenge. Um, and having them to change their behaviors and change the way that they have been successful in the past is a huge step for a lot of leaders. And if they're unable to do that, if they're unable to kind of get out of their own way and get out of their people's way, um, it will impede growth. I think overall, you know, 
in the nonprofit sector, we're always kind of thinking about the bottom line and kind of being in, in a little bit of a scarcity mindset. What I really try to work with leaders around is to shift their mindset from that of abundance, which is like, look, there's plenty of money out there. There are plenty of people who would want to support this organization. It is our job to just let them know and to find the people who want to be part of this thing. Um, and I also think that leaders, because they're in a scarcity mindset, tend to think about expenses as uh, expenses as opposed to investments. And so sometimes, you know, they'll go for like the cheapest acts, like the cheapest contractor, the cheapest, you know, whatever, the cheapest materials. Um, and in some cases, I think that makes sense. And in other cases, I think it means that you get what you pay for. And so I really struggle with helping people to understand the difference between an expense and an investment and how to spend money so that it is a value as opposed to money out the door. Mm. And then I also just try to be a friend to executive directors. I mean, it is a really lonely job. And the fact is, as an executive director, you're the only one who sees what you see. So executive directors sit at the top of the organization. They are responsible for execution of strategy. So all of the messy business of, of the work. Um, and the work is always hard. It never goes <laughs> according to plan. It's always more complicated. Things, you know, are, they're always hiccups. Staff members quit, you know, money runs out, uh, deadlines get missed. I mean, it's, it's always a challenge. And you're also managing a board who are in theory, your bosses, but also your volunteers. And you're also managing funders and being in the external face of the organization. So you have this very unique nexus point at which you're kind of holding all of these different pieces together and nobody can truly appreciate and see what you see or know what you're struggling with. And so I always thought of my role as a consultant to just sit alongside somebody and help them shoulder this burden because it, it can be a tremendous burden to hold um, it's wonderful and it's life affirming. And I think uh, I would not have changed my experience for the world, but it's not easy. Well, Ria, I appreciate you joining the show today. Are there any final thoughts you would like to leave the listeners with today? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say that one of the things that I wish I had done better, and, and I really uh, recommend that folks who are in leadership roles think about is take some time to really love up your staff. Because at the end of the day, they are the ways in which you get the work done. Mm. It's all about people. We can talk about companies. We can talk about countries. We can talk about kind of monolithic organizations. But at the end of the day, it's all driven by people and it's all driven by relationships. And so take a moment to love up your people. That's a good word. Now, where can people go to learn more about you and your work in addition to obviously your podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown? Uh, it's all on my website, riawong.com, R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. All righty. Thank you so much for joining the show today, Ria. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed Ria's insight today. I thought she brought a lot of great insight from her experience leading at Breakthrough New York. And I think that there are a lot of things that no matter where you are in your leadership, you can reflect on what she had to say and tweak some of what you're doing in order to be a better leader and a better guide to those who are under you. Now, the three things that I thought were really helpful from today's interview were, first of all, the impetus behind her starting her podcast, at least as she shared it on this interview today. She said that she had 
so many people that she knew around her, a wealth of riches, so to speak, and she wanted to make sure that she could share that with other people, that she could learn from it. And so one of the takeaways that I have from this episode is that you have great resources around you whether that's people or skills or whatever else. So identify those and take advantage of them instead of ignoring them. There are so many people that can speak into your life who would probably like to do that, but they may not be doing it because they don't feel like they have the permission or there's anyone who is interested. And so what I would recommend is think about people that you can ask for their insight. Think about people that have resources that they would like to share with you in order to help you be more effective in what you're doing. And of course, always be thinking about how you can do that for other people, but don't ignore the resources that are around you. The second thing is that leadership is not only explicit, but also implicit. When you are the leader of an organization, everyone is looking at you and taking cues from how you act, how you think, and how you feel. So be aware that people may make meaning out of your actions, even if that meaning is not your intention. Be aware of how what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're saying, how that is affecting other people. And finally, there tends to be a point at which the strength of leaders and particularly the strengths of founders become weaknesses. So be aware of this, especially for yourself, and make sure that you get out of your organization's way when necessary so that they can work most effectively. Make sure that you are setting people up for success instead of slowing them down. Now, I've included links in this week's show notes to the podcast that Rhea mentioned in today's interview, as well as links so that you can connect with her on social media if you would like to. So if you've liked what you heard from Rhea today, be sure to follow up with her. And finally, make sure to come back on Monday when we interview someone who has some great insight about the importance of creating and sharing content on social media as a way to grow your influence as a leader. Until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. 
If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading wealth.